it's following these rebellions in 1980 that the British government's become very concerned um, with how they're going to deal with the um, uh, black populations of the, of, of, that, have, that are establishing themselves in Britain. And so they therefore enlist the uh, consultancy of two uh, British colonial police forces, uh, the Hong Kong uh, British Police and the uh, Royal Ulster Constabulary of, of the North of Ireland. And they um, are invited to help the British police deal with these uh, black populations. So we see the British in you know, quite an illustrative way frame and consider these black populations to be colonial subjects, even if they are indeed British citizens living on the British mainland in 1980. Spaces that are completely segregated and racialized. What it is like to be, you know, queer and Arab, and how difficult that might be, or how do you negotiate that? The destruction of the social cultural worlds of black people, of African people, those who were here before. Which kinds of bodies get disciplined and regulated through discourse, but also in actual practice? Hi, I'm Magrida Waku. I'm Caroline Honorian. And I'm Leopold Lambert. This is the Phenomenalist podcast, operating in parallel with the Phenomenalist magazine that engages with the politics of space and bodies. Our hope is to provide a useful platform where activists, academics and practitioners build solidarities across geographical scales. Each episode, we invite someone we admire and learn from their experiences, research and struggle. Hello everyone, today we're coming back for a new episode of the regular Phenomenalist podcast series uh, and I'm very happy that my guest is Adam Elliott Cooper who's a lecturer in politics in, at uh, Queen Mary University of London uh, in London <laughs> uh, and as well as the author of a fantastic book that we're going to talk about today which is called Black Resistance to British Policing, uh, published by University of Manchester, uh, Manchester University Press, sorry. Uh, hi, Adam. Hi, thanks so much for having me on today, Leopold. No, um, thank you very much. So, uh, yeah, so I think we're, we're your, your book is very much um, what uh, will drive the, the conversation today. Uh, I was telling you in off that uh, it was part of my little self-education on on the history of the of the of the anti-racist struggles in in britain uh from the 70s to 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 today in in the little time i got to spend in london uh, this past semester so i'm very i'm very grateful to 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 have encountered it and and read your words oh, thanks well your podcast is part of my project to learn about the anti-racist struggles everywhere else uh, so thank you <laughs> thanks well, I, I think, well, to, at least in today's conversation, we'll, we'll try to make quite a few bridges with uh, uh, your neighbors, i.e. France, i.e. where I am. <laughs> so, so uh, and, and, and it was quite, um, it was super interesting for me to see your methodology throughout the book, which is very much to uh, establish um, what we might call the colonial genealogy of, of policing, which is something that, as, as I was telling you, I personally learned so much from um, Mathieu Rigoust's work in the context of the French colonial empire. And uh, there are three particular, uh, what I like to call space-time, that you're considering to particularly make sense of this colonial genealogy, even though it's very important to say that there are many others you're mobilizing, but there are three that sort of come back throughout the book. Uh, which are the island island at large or, or a little bit later, the, the north uh, of Ireland specifically, uh, Malaya during uh, the so-called emergency between 1948 and 1960, as well as the Mau Mau uprising, or rather to be more precise, the counter-revolution, <laughs> the British counter-revolution against the Mau Mau uprising in Kenya from 1952 to 1960. And... Those examples particularly res resonated for me because they're, they were all um, mobilizing the British state of emergency, which uh, had echoed with my own work that I tried to do on the, on the French state emergency, the colonial, uh, as a colonial um, 
uh, structures of the of the French state emergency, which I still think has been inspired somehow by the British state emergency because uh, uh, Malaya and Kenya were really soon soon before uh, the Algerian revolution. So I was wondering, perhaps to start, if we could if we could simply talk about that this colonial uh, this colonial genealogy, genealogy sorry, uh, what does it does what does it do for you uh, in your work and uh, and if you could also tell us about those three particular space time. Sure. So the reason I think it's important to consider colonial policing for Britain is because if we want to look at the history of British policing. One of the most important things to consider is that most of the, for the most of the history of British policing, it has not taken place on the British mainland. It's taken place in, across its colonies, on the African continent, across parts of South Asia and Southeast Asia, Australia, Ireland, parts of the so-called Middle East and, and the Caribbean and what have you. And by doing this, I think it can help us to better understand not only some of the forms of colonial practices and policies and techniques that are deployed which eventually come to be used on the British mainland but crucially as well discursively the kinds of ideas rationales justifications forms of propaganda uh, that are deployed uh, which are equally as important so let's take the first one the techniques so some of the techniques that we see being used in these colonial or post-colonial contexts or decolonizing contexts is first, the most important one is that the fact they are decolonizing contexts. So if we think about in what circumstances it is that we see new policing tactics and policies um, being deployed, it's usually through these so-called states of emergency. Sometimes I'm interested in looking at Trinidad during the uh, workers' movements of the 1930s, which were also anti-colonial struggles. But more often I'm interested in these armed uprisings in places like um, Malaysia and Kenya, in which in the context of Kenya, we have a uh, armed uprising against an apartheid regime. In the context of Malaya, we have more of a guerrilla insurgency in the context of a, a rainforest environment. But in all of these contexts, we have a number of different tactics, but also rationales being deployed. The first is the identification of a suspect community. In Trinidad, it is, uh, they are trade unions and trade unionists. In the context of Kenya, they are a, the Kikuyu nation. Um, in the context of Malaya, they are the um, Chinese, people of Chinese Malay heritage. And of course, in the context of Ireland, um, they are uh, Catholic uh, uh, Irish people. And so, the first, so once that, that suspect community is identified, the next policy that is deployed is a form of collective punishments. Uh, these can be forms of surveillance and monitoring. So that could be checkpoints, searches in, more, in, more, um, in less invasive conditions, but they can also be forms of collective punishments, which, punishment which are far more brutal. So that could be mass violence being imposed on strikes or uh, workers' protests or in the context of... Uh, Malaya, they can be uh, the so-called protection villages in which villages of people are effectively surrounded with barbed wire, watchtowers and control everyone who comes in and out are controlled. Or alternatively, they can be effectively labour camps or death camps, as was, as was in the context of Kenya, in which large numbers of people are either subject to, subject to hangings and other forms of capital punishment or are worked to death um, in these particular camps. The other thing that's crucially discursive about the, this approach of collective punishment is the identification of a specific category of crime which this suspect community is purportedly engaged in. So in the context of Kenya, um, it's forms of so-called uh, terrorism. So there's a counter-terror offensive, uh, which they refer to as terror gangs. And in the context of Malaya, they are communist terrorists. So rather than being gangs and therefore inherently criminal, there is a more kind of political subversion uh, being attributed to the anti-colonial struggle. Um, in the context of um, Trinidad, they're more likely to be associated with communism because they are a trade union movement. And again, in Ireland, they're more likely to be associated with terrorism. Um, so we see these kinds of um, uh, categories of crime being imposed or projected upon this suspect community. And finally, of course, it's the importance of race as a rationalisation of these 
both these these labels that are imposed, but also these tactics. The idea that there are specific racial traits or um, predispositions of African people or of Southeast Asian people of, or of the Irish or of Caribbean people, which makes them predispo predisposed to violence or chaos or subversion um, or immorality in one way or another. And I think the, the last thing I'd like to say about it, which I think is crucially important, which is something which is distinctly British, is the importance or the aim of these counterinsurgency operations to not be ruling by violence force. Once the British are ruling by violence, they consider much of the battle to already have been lost. Britain are very proud of the fact that their police, according to them, police by consent. And for them, and maybe Gramsci can help us with this, ruling by consent is a far more powerful way of policing a colonised population than policing by coercion. And there's a great quote which I think encapsulates this by a man called Sir Robert Thompson, which was, which, who was a colonial bureaucrat in charge of the uh, counterinsurgency operation in Malaya. And what he said was... Um, uh, an interesting um, observation when he was brought into Vietnam by the Americans as a consultant to help them with their counterinsurgency operation sometime later. And he said, and I'm paraphrasing here, when a Vietnamese peasant has his cattle killed by the US forces and he makes an official complaint and receives compensation for the loss of his property, then I know we will be winning the war. And what he meant by this was that in order for America to be winning the war in Vietnam or for Britain to be winning the war in Malaya, the colonised population need to consider the occupying army and their institutions to be the legitimate avenues of justice. Not joining the insurgency when your livelihood is destroyed. Not becoming engaged in anti-colonial politics when you feel your rights are being infringed upon. But by in fact going to the colonizing army, going to the imperial forces, in order to try to gain the rights and freedoms that they claim they are affording you. And so by ruling, by, by creating the air of legitimacy, countries like Britain were able to establish for them far more effective colonial regimes than those which could only hold on to colonial power through force and violence. Thank you. Uh, yeah, it, I mean, I specifically remember this quote uh, that you're analyzing in the book and uh, quite interestingly also uh, associating it, I think, with uh, the sort of appeal that uh, Kenyan prisoners uh, would make to the, for the British colonizer to respect the British law. And you're, you're telling us, well, you know, today we might find it a, a little bit funny that, you know, colonized people would appeal the colonizing power to uh, uphold the British law. But this is pretty much what we do when we try to, tr to try uh, cases of racist murders, of uh, police murders uh, 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 today within a, a just judicial system that's definitely, uh, I don't know if it's made for it, but it's, it's definitely complicit with, with, with the racial order to begin with, right? Uh, yes, I think that if we examine British, British institutions like the court systems or the police forces or what have you, all of them emerge not in a national British context, but in an international imperial context. Britain was founded in 1707, not as a nation state, but as an imperial state. And all of the, the institutions which emerged out of Britain's establishment in 1707 were thus predicated on maintaining an empire. And therefore, racial governance is fundamental to all of the functioning of these institutions. And therefore, we should be unsurprised that um, today they continue to reproduce those forms of racial hierarchy and, and racial governance. Hmm. And so you, you talked about this military personnel. Uh, was it Robert Thompson? Is that right? Yeah. So uh, Robert Thompson, that was, uh, you know, uh, in, uh, in Malaya for the British counter-revolution that invited by the U.S. for the, the war against, uh, against um, North Vietnam. And, um, and it makes me think of other uh, profiles, figures you describing uh, throughout the book. 
of uh, British uh, military officers essentially navig navigating in what I call the, the British colonial continuum uh, uh, in various various geographies at various times, uh, like uh, Kenneth Newman, Frank Kitson. Uh, I'm thinking of uh, um, of Charles Taggart as well, who is quite interesting. It's like uh, coming from a settler family in Ireland, in Derry, of all places, uh, and uh, 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 and being the chief of police in colonized Kolkata, and then ending up in in uh, in colonized Palestine, building. Uh, I think over 70 forts uh, uh, to reinforce the British colonial presence, one of which is extremely famous today because it's a Mukata. It's a, it's, a, it's a place that the Palestinian Authority has been has been um, establishing itself. Uh, but so what I find quite interesting, because I tried to do the same uh, in my book about the French state emergency with many, uh, not just military officers, but also public servants and, and, um, and this kind of people. What I find quite interesting is that even though it would seem that when we do that, we would choose to describe people and individuals rather than systems, actually, I think we do the opposite. Like the, the fact that we're able to follow those people is basically revealing the trajectories that the system have established for them to 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 do their job, which is to to learn counter-revolution uh, uh, in various different settings, and quite often ending also in the metropol metropolitan setting and and being in charge of various policing function. Uh, um, in, in your case, in Britain, uh, uh, against pretty much the the children of those who were once the targets of their of their of their policy could you could you tell us about that yeah sure so uh, as you rightly mentioned we see a lot of colonial careering uh, people like frank kitson going from um uh, certain colonial outposts as a low-level officer learning about the front line of counterinsurgency and then finally rising to a significant uh, um, level to basically mastermind the death camps of, of Kenya um, in the 1950s and early 1960s. I think two things are really interesting about this, what, what we might call boomerang effect. The first is that very often these kinds of colonial forms of rationale and tactics come back to Britain via, of course, um, its oldest colony, Ireland. And we see this um, following a number of urban uprisings in Britain in 1980. So in 1980, uh, there are two big urban uh, rebellions in black conurbations in St Paul's in Bristol, in the south of England, and in Nottingham in the East Midlands of England. And it's following these rebellions in 1980 that the British government's become very concerned um, with how they're going to deal with the um, uh, black populations of the of, of that, have, that are establishing themselves in Britain, and so they therefore enlist the uh, consultancy of two uh, British colonial police forces: uh, the Hong Kong uh, British Police and the uh, Royal Ulster Constabulary of, of the North of Ireland. And they um, are invited to help the British police deal with these uh, black populations. So we see the British in you know quite a illustrative way frame and consider these black populations to be colonial subjects even if they are indeed british citizens living on the british mainland in 1980 and it's 1981 that we see a, a further spread of urban rebellions following a number of different uh, police tactics and uh, operations including operation swamp which is a massive stop and search operation in places like brixton in south london and toxteth in liverpool in the north of england and, and another number of other cities and it's following these uprisings that we see a number of tactics taken really from ireland and uh, used on the british mainland for the first time this includes the use of forms of poison gas, particularly CS spray and pepper spray, being used in Toxteth in Liverpool and Moss Side in Manchester, both in the north of England, uh, during these rebellions in 1981. We see another tactic in which, um, in order to disperse crowds, uh, armoured vehicles are driven at crowds of uh, demonstrators, and this ended up uh, killing a young person um, in this context in, in Manchester, if I remember correctly. Um, and it's after these rebellions um, that we see the British, I guess, really increase their concerns. 
in in a more kind of explicit way. And they bring in a new head of the Metropolitan Police, a man, as you mentioned, Sir Kenneth Newman, who uh, cuts his teeth in British Mandate Palestine as a lower level police, colonial police officer, but gained his knighthood and became a sir uh, by handing over, being responsible for handing over power from the British government to the Royal Ulster Constabulary, the British run police force in the north of Ireland. And he was considered, therefore, qualified to deal with black communities and the urban rebellions and protests that they had been engaged in in 1981. And it's in 1985 that we see more rebellions, um, both in Tottenham in North London and in Brixton in South London. Uh, the raid on, a, on a, the home of a, a, a mother in South London uh, in which armoured police um, uh, uh, knock the door down uh the a a, a woman called uh, cherry gross comes down the stairs in her night clothes and she's shot by the police and paralyzed and a few days later the police raid the home of a man called floyd jarrett um who they have arrested um his mother is at home and she dies during the raid on her home and following these deaths of two black mothers we see this um uh, another set of uprisings and here to cut a long story short uh, we see baton rounds or rubber bullets being brought to the scene of a of protest for the first time on, on the British mainland in British history. And, and we see more and more forms of militarised policing, uh, uh, armoured, armored, not just armoured vehicles, but armoured police officers, riot gear, all of these types of things, which again had been used in contexts like Hong Kong and Ireland, but were yet to be used on the British mainland until these black rebellions in the 1980s. And the final thing, of course, that we see um, coming round to Britain, which is really important as well, is of course the, the, the identification of these suspect communities and the attached uh, categories of crime associated with them. So we see the idea of gangs, not terror gangs necessarily, as they were called in Kenya, but certainly the, the, the language of gangs being used to justify this type of policing. We see the spectre of the mugger being borrowed from the streets of New York and Los Angeles, again being applied to working class black communities in urban areas in the UK, which enables the police to justify to the public and in many ways rationalise to themselves the requirements for new forms of policing, new forms of tactics, or new to the British mainland anyway, in order to deal with these black populations. Well, precisely, let's go, uh, let's dive deeper into this question uh, of the suspect that already came up quite a bit, because I mean, it's, it's very, very much central to your, to your book in how, how does the state construct the figure of a suspect and from there and and when I when I mean that I mean both individually and you have a particular examination of the way uh, certain masculinities are being come to be approached uh, and and collectively and you just mentioned the question of a gang and it's true that uh, as as obvious as it may seem it might be worse it might be worth uh, stressing something you you stress in your book which is that no one really has a definition of what a gang is as if there was uh, some sort of like statuses and uh, and <laughs> yeah anyway um and and so what's important to see probably in this in this figure of the suspect is that it's precisely what will allow for extra legal or legal uh, policing to happen uh and in the legal part i think I felt it was interesting to see that there was something similar uh, between Britain and, and France in how essentially we go from police officers not really in a legal manner, not really being able to, you know, stop someone and, and search them or ask them for their ID to us, which, of course, we as we know, was a practices, a policing practices that were anyway enacted. It's not because it wasn't legal that it was not enacted to the establishment of a legal framework for, for it, which very much um, um, very very much almost cites this figure of the suspect. Like if there is suspicion, uh, then one police officer might be able to might be able to search someone essentially. And and of course as what what characterizes a suspicion is totally left to the to the discretion of the police officer and the police institution at large. So uh, so this figure of the sus of the suspect is extremely important in so far as that it is very much what gives the legitimacy to to all this in um, to to the to the to the bigger society, let's say. 
uh, in addition to, of course, some maybe what we might describe a, a, a easily ferti fer fertilizable uh, soil of racism among among white society, but that that still that is a I would say that is a soil that does not necessarily bear fruits if it's not heavily. <laughs> irrigated with an entire imaginary that I would like to ask you about right now. Sure. So I borrow somewhat from a brilliant text by Stuart Hall and colleagues uh, called Policing the Crisis. And they're writing in the 1970s and thinking about two crises that are facing Britain at this time. One of them is the economic crisis of the 1970s, and the other is a crisis of Britain's national identity. Britain doesn't know who it is as a nation now that it's losing its empire and its uh, global influence and power. And of course, the, the Labour government at this time is unable to uh, ameliorate the national crisis of identity, and they're unwilling to ameliorate the economic crisis, right? They are beholden to the uh, demands of capital. And so in order for them to maintain legitimacy on the eyes in the eyes of the electorate, what they instead do is they identify a different crisis that they are going to deal with. And that crisis is a crisis of law and order. Now, unsurprisingly, there are um, uh, there are people who do commit, you know, uh, theft or whatever it might be, in, particularly during an economic crisis, particularly among the most oppressed communities uh, in uh, in, in a country like Britain. But what they do is they, they identify this crisis, this crisis of law and order, and they say that this is the crisis that we're dealing with. And this is able to deal with both the crisis of identity and the economic crisis. Because what they're able to do is they're able to say, you might, you feel the British public are concerned with their material conditions and there's a threat to their material conditions. And this is, arises through the economic crisis, the crisis in capitalism. But what the government say is the real threat to your material conditions isn't your lack of wages or the risk to your pensions or anything like that. It's the fact that people might steal your material possessions, what few you have left. And it is black young people that are going to steal them. And while this pro this crisis of national identity in Britain is arising out of the loss of empire, what is exacerbating that crisis, of course, is just as Britain is losing and coming to terms with the fact that it's completely lost its grip on its former empire, the colonial subjects who had been subjugated for so long and been a necessary component of this imperial grandeur that made up British identity are t not just turning up on the shores of Britain, but are establishing them in themselves as part of Britain's permanent um, social and cultural community. And so by, by not simply identifying them as being the real threat, apparently, to Britain, Brit the British people's material conditions, but also saying that we are going to discipline them um, in ways that are perhaps echoing echoing the colonial grandeur of the past the labor government seeks to re-establish itself as being the party which can position itself as the most legitimate leader of the british nation and of course britain lose the labor party lose the 1979 election and the Mar margaret thatcher governments take this idea of law and order and racism and um, uh, inject it with steroids and we're, we're now in the situation that we're currently in in which after a number of years of, of Tony Blair's government which kind of continued this process we have a number of what Paul Gilroy calls racial folk devils uh, which are used to identify uh, racial others whether they be the terrorist the illegal immigrants the gangster or what have you and identifies for the British public that this is the real crisis that we're facing, not a crisis in our social care and healthcare systems, not a crisis in our pensions, not a, not a cost of living crisis or a crisis um, in our wages, not an ecological crisis and a, and a looming climate crisis. Um, uh, all of these crises can be worked through in one way or another by placing the border, by repressing the gangster, by... Um, by incarcerating and deporting the alleged terrorist. And so I think through the ways in which these forms of um, uh, racial category of crime are being used for, by the governments to not only 
legitimize itself in its own power, but crucially for the police to legitimize and expand its own power as well. And you pointed to a question of gender, which I think is really important as well. We see this playing out a great deal. So, and that maybe there's two or three ways in which we can think about this. The first is that a lot of the kinds of um, solutions to this problem of violence, um, particularly uh, um, among young men, is a different form of legitimate, legitimate state violence. So you see army cadets, air cadets and police cadets being, um, uh, being set up, particularly in multicultural working class areas of Britain, so that young people won't be engaged in uh, violence within their own community, but can instead engage in the legitimate state violence of the armed forces or the police and prison system. We see this being used to kind of transpose a criminalised, subordinated form of masculine violence into an institutionalised, legitimised form of patriarchal violence. And I think through the problems of both of these forms of patriarchal violence in order to consider the ways in which gender is a crucial way of understanding both the forms of intracommunal violence that exist among working class and um, communities all over the world, anywhere in which inequality arises, but crucially how we can't and we have to criticise the patriarchal solutions that are um, presented to us by the state, right? And, and instead think about non-violent, non-patriarchal and crucially abolitionist solutions to these kinds of violence. So throughout the book, you, you examine a certain amount of racist police murder, uh, murders, but one of them is perhaps used by you as a paradigm of, I suppose, both uh, the logics of um, of the murder itself, the, the justification of it, and, but also the resistance, uh, as you know, the book is called Black Resistance to British Policing, and that is uh, the murder of uh, Mark Duggan in um, August 4th, 2011, um, that led to like massive uh, revolts in, in Tottenham and other places of London, and I think in Britain at large. Um, uh, and so this is a bit, in our conversation, it's a bit of a pivot, let's say, from those colonial structures and pol racist policies uh, and policing and policies uh, that we just talked about to also, uh, importantly, uh, this this notion of resistance and black resistance in particular. Um, could you perhaps uh, tell us about why it is a paradigm and, and also just perhaps remind a certain amount of people who do not live in Britain uh, about Mark Duggan himself? Sure. So in 2011, I would say there were three high-profile deaths at the hands of police. The first was a reggae artist called Smiley Culture, um, who died during a raid on his home in the February of that year. A few months later, a man called Kingsley Burrell died at hands, the hands of police in Birmingham in the West Midlands. He died of asphyxiation in circumstances not dissimilar to that of George, George Floyd in 2020. And then in the, um, both of these led to large um, black-led protests in both London and Birmingham um, and a fair degree of, of media coverage. So there was already a significant amount of mobilisation and organising taking place in response to these um, significant uh, deaths at hands, the hands of police. Then in the August of 2011, Mark Duggan was um, uh, travelling in a taxi. The police did a hard stop on the taxi, forcing it to pull over. He got out of the car and the vehicle and the police shot him dead. Now, rather than the police telling his family that uh, his loved their loved one had died, they instead wrote a police press statement um, and released it to journalists claiming that there was a shootout between them um, and Mark Duggan. Uh, what eventually transpired was that the police officer who had been shot um, uh, and the bullets which landed in his police radio, which meant that he was unharmed, was a police issue bullet. One police officer had accidentally shot one of his own colleagues. Mark Duggan's, Duggan's body, however, was found with no um, uh, 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 gun um, next to him. And, it could, and by this time, however, the mistruth on the hands of the police had already spread across the media. 
His family and the community um, hadn't been visited by a police officer and they found out by watching on the news that their loved one had been killed. And so they went to the police station and had a peaceful protest to the station, which the police ignored. Unsurprisingly, uh, this protest escalated into a, a series of rebellions which began in Tottenham, then across London and then across the whole of England for four days in August of that year. But what I'm really interested in is the state's response to these uh, rebellions, a massive increase in stops, searches, raids on people's homes, instances, instances of brutality. And the justification for this, according to the then Prime Minister um, David Cameron, was the necessity for what he referred to as an all out war on gangs and gang culture. And this language of gangs, as I mentioned, had been used in the colonies, the, the communist gangs of Malaya, the terror gangs of Kenya. But now we are seeing this uh, being used in the UK context in a far more prolific way. Right? And it had, of course, been popularised in its um, U US iterations as well. And identifying... Uh, Mark Duggan as a gangster, the, the police and the press referred to him as one of the 48 most dangerous gangsters in Europe, despite the fact that he had uh, no violent criminal record, um, meant that the police were able to deploy a large number of violent tactics in order to repress uh, the rebellions and the communities um, that were implicated in them. And a number of defence campaigns arose out of this, including those in Tottenham, the Tottenham Defence Campaign, others in East London and other parts of the country as well. And they sought to defend these communities from the raids on people's homes, from the arrests, from the cases of uh, brutality and whatnot. And so I was interested in how before these rebellions, you had these big marches and big mobilizations. And in the aftermath of these rebellions, you have these community organizing defense uh, campaigns emerging. And so what, one of the things I wanted to argue is that we should, we cannot think about these violent uprisings as being distinct and separate from these ostensibly peaceful forms of protest and organizing. And we should instead understand these tactics of police resistance as being a continuum, which can go all the way from very low profile um, uh, organizing in communities to help people whose homes have been raided or have experienced police brutality through all of these rebellions that take place, which grab headlines and infuriate politicians, as well as the often uh, um, uh, large scale but relatively peaceful uh, protests and mobilizations that can be uh, which are considered to be more organized right and, and understand that these are all forms of resi black resistance to British policing which play in, all play different but important roles in challenging the legitimacy of state violence and help us to understand the different ways in which both people respond to these forms of violence but also how change can occur as a result of them. Um, going further in this question of resistance I think um, there's one thing that's clearly uh, was clearly very important to you in, in your work. And by the way, I should, I should add that the entire reading we're doing of your book right now is very much my own retrospect uh, plan because it's not at all organized the way we organize the conversation. So perhaps that's a, a little way to also say, you should read the book. Don't, don't, <laughs> don't, don't be satisfied with this conversation. Uh, um, but anyway, yeah, one thing that was very important is uh, the resistance that is particularly led by black women. And uh, I would like you to tell us maybe a little bit more about that. But also, since you also clearly um, do so, uh, influenced very much by uh, um, by feminist uh, epistemologies and, and and activism, I also wanted to to ask you a question that uh, is a is a difficult question, but uh, given and that that we could have just as much uh, in in France for sure, is how do we avoid uh, describing uh, this resistance avoiding the reinscription of woman as wife of, daughter of, sister of, when precisely many of them uh, uh, are rooted in the defense in, uh, for justice, for truth and justice, for a man of their family who was killed. So how do we, how do we manage to go beyond this sort of reinscription? 
Yeah, that's a really good um, set of questions. Thank you. So as I'm sure many listeners have noticed, um, many of the spokespeople or campaigners challenging black deaths at the hands of the police, places like the United States, as well as in Britain and other part, and, and elsewhere, are often, yes, people um, who are grieving. And they are often mothers, sisters, widows, um, other uh, women who are, who are loved ones. And of course, there are there are there are there is a tactical approach which is quite clear, which is the fact that very often black protest is seen as inherently uh, uh, criminal and immoral and illegitimate, and therefore playing up to a certain respectability politics of a grieving mother or grieving uh, family member helps to counter that um, uh, that criminalization by performing a certain degree of, of respectability, which is a very, of course, heteronormative um, respectability. And one of the things I wanted to do in the book is speak to the women who are involved in these campaigns and ask them about this. And what I will say is that there was no definitive answer. Everyone, perhaps we should be unsurprised, everyone had a different kind of perspective. Some of the women I spoke to talked about how they always understood black motherhood as being a form of collective resistance. It wasn't simply about defending your own nuclear family structure, but doing a politics, a, a, maybe a, 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 a form of triple work or polit a politics of care, which is radical and collective. Some of them recounted histories of chattel slavery in which uh, enslaved mothers would engage in forms of resistance to um, uh, be able to maintain relationships with not only their own children but other children who were enslaved. They talked a lot about how the campaigns they were involved in, which were made up of the family and friends of those who have been killed, understood notions of motherhood and sisterhood as being a, mother, a, a motherhood which is beyond the nuclear family and about caring for uh, the, all of the people within your community, and particularly those that, which you, that you organise with and, and, and engage with in, on a more collective uh, basis. But crucially for many of the women I spoke to, they, in, they I identified both as a, a grieving family member, but also as an anti-state and very often anti-imperialist activist as well. And they wanted to challenge the idea simultaneously that the black family was this chaotic degenerate um uh, uh place where uh people were not properly properly cared for which is of course an enduring racial stereotype which goes back uh, centuries through uh through uh colonial discourses but also they wanted to dismantle the existing notions of family as only constituting the nuclear family and instead think about a broader conception of family that brought in notions of community, brought in notions of um, people involved in collective campaigns, thinking about how this language of sisterhood or motherhood or whatever it might be um, must think beyond um, those um, narrow conceptions of what, what a family might be. But of course there is, there is no, and that I have come across, perfect answer to completely breaking down um, these what are often gendered roles of caring um, and I didn't think it I, don't, I didn't think and still don't feel it is necessarily my place um, to project onto the women who are involved in these campaigns a different identity um, to conceptualize their activism um, be, which maybe doesn't reproduce notions of, of gendered caring yeah, thank you very much. I mean, uh, just to be clear, I, I meant for us describing from the outside, so to speak, how do we how do we avoid those traps? And of course, not not at all imposing those questions on uh, uh, the people involved themselves. Um, but as a as a final question, I, I want to end on on solidarity and at the various scales, uh, the scale of, of Britain itself. Uh, although I might say uh, a word that I don't particularly love, but at the UK itself, and therefore how also the you know we talked about Ireland quite a bit at the beginning and what kind of solidarity can exist also with people who are still fighting for um, uh, 
the reunification re of, uh, of the whole of Ireland. Um, but within within Britain, also the the, the different solidarities that perhaps uh, can be found, and of course in that case that is actually the plan of your books. This is more in your conclusion. Uh, 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 um, uh, racialized communities that are affected uh, sometimes differently, but uh, uh, at least commonly uh, by structural racism. And here I'm also thinking of perhaps the heritage of what's been called political blackness, even though, uh, I mean, this is a, this is a topic that should be probably uh, defined well to, to, be, to be talked well, I suppose. <laughs> uh, but also I wanted to ask you about uh, the, the potentialities for broader solidarities transnationally, also because, you know, we talked about Malaya, we talked about Kenya and, uh, and uh, Trinidad, and, uh, and they're still... They're still room for solidarities uh, there I suppose I mean I'm, I'm just thinking about one but like how uh, uh, a group of uh, a group of Kenyan men and women have managed to obtain reparation from the British state for the violence they had received during the counter-revolution against the Mau Mau uprising and uh, and I wonder whether there had been some some a good I mean perhaps you don't know I'm sorry but like if, if there had been some good uh, some some good yeah forms of solidarity with uh perhaps uh, uh black or non-black communities uh who are living in in, in britain um and then uh, and then perhaps leave the door open for the commonalities that clearly uh what i was made very evident to me reading your book with what uh, we are facing here uh in france and and how perhaps uh, uh there had been some channels of of uh, communication that were maybe even more present in the 80s than they are now which is quite annoying and disappointing <laughs> but uh you know it's it's also up to us to make them happen so <laughs> yeah i think you're completely right in the fact that during the 1960s, 70s and early 80s, the channels of communication between anti-colonial and anti-imperial movements across borders were far more coherent and well established, particularly in the context of um, the Republican struggle in the north of Ireland. Um, and we see this, of course, in magazines like Race Today or newspapers like The Black Voice, where they have reports of strikes in the Philippines or in uh, Namibia or wherever it might be, and uh, contributors from many parts of the world. And we, yeah, I wouldn't say that there are certainly as direct links today. But I think that's partly because in the 1960s and 70s, there were far more, there were far more, co there was far more coherence in the world of anti-imperialism, right? You had movements in Mozambique and Angola and Rhodesia and South Africa, where you had these very clearly articulated anti-imperial campaigns that um, activists could build links of solidarity with. And I think the coherence that you had back then isn't necessarily um, as widespread today as it was then. We can think about Palestine in a few other contexts, but certainly it's more complex in somewhere like South Africa, for instance, right? Um, where you have trade unions and a number of social movements, but not the same kind of uh, racial coherence racial capitalism um, as perhaps you had during the period of apartheid right um, and so I think it's difficult far more difficult to build those links of solidarity but we are seeing it in a number of ways and one of the ways in which we're seeing it which I think is quite interesting was the other set of anti-police mobilizations we saw shortly after the uh, Black Lives Matter protests of 2020 and th those were the end SARS or the stop SARS campaigns right against the um, security forces in Nigeria, which were carrying out huge abuses um, across uh, 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 the, the, the country, uh, brutalising working class people. And you had big mobilisations in Britain, outside the Nigerian embassy, outside the BBC, um, led by um, people of the Nigerian and other parts of the West African diaspora, um, saying, you know, demanding, um, uh, uh, you know, that that these kinds of forms of not just these forms of violence end but that these particular parts of the police are dissolved right so reducing the amount of policing in in uh, in Nigeria but crucially also drawing the link between 
British forms of neo-colonial policing. The fact that the British police carry out huge amounts of uh, consultancy, training, um, uh, weapons deployment um, for police forces in its former colonies across the African continent in places in the Caribbean and elsewhere. And thinking about those neo-colonial connections. And I think it's that that's going to, I think, provide some of the most important fuel and kind of the material basis for um, maintaining and hopefully developing these potential links of solidarity across uh, different parts of the world. I think the other place in which we're seeing potential links, of course, of solidarity is are through um, uh, channels in Europe and thinking about um, forms of uh, migrant solidarity and how Fortress Europe, even if Britain ostensibly isn't part of it anymore and it has its own nationalist um, fortress, um, necessitates a transnational solidarity. Right? We have to think across borders if we're going to engage in um, no borders work. And we're continually seeing, of course, a far close relationship between the border regime and the more formalised um, uh, uh, police operations that are raiding the businesses where um, undocumented people are suspected of uh, working, of the homes and places, residences in which they're suspected of residing, um, and th and thinking about how we can solidify these kinds of forms of resistance, I think is trans sees transnational transnationalism as being fundamental to these forms of resistance. And I know there's a lot of back and forth of black-led groups that are going to places like Calais, where migrants are attempting to cross um, the sea border there, um, that, are, that are working with French groups as well, um, working on those borders. And so we're seeing transnational solidarity across, I guess, different black groups in Europe, but in solidarity, of course, with people arriving um, in Europe from the global south, fleeing uh, uh, climate catastrophe, economic underdevelopment, imperial um, imperial fueled violence, and other drivers of movement um, for these people as well. And so, I think thinking about these neo-colonial connections through policing, but as well as well as um, migration, the movements against borders, are some of the two most coherent ways we're seeing the possibilities of um, transnational solidarity in today. Amazing. Well. Thank you so much, Adam, for taking the time to uh, deploy uh, a part of part of what you already put in the book, but not necessarily with the exact same articulation, and and then also uh, more. <laughs> uh, uh, also, because I feel that when a book is published, it it's usually uh, we already sort of move further from the work quite often, and so uh, it felt it felt also a little bit like this, which was great. So. I, I re-recommend to everyone to read Black Resistance to British Policy uh, and hopefully this conversation was as interesting to you as it was to me. So thanks again, Adam. Great. No, thank you for having me on. It's a pleasure.